My name is Andrew Tan, and this is As Asians. Every episode, we talk to a different awesome Asian professional, covering topics such as navigating careers, the Asian identity, and ways on figuring out this thing called life. We hope the stories and advice from this podcast can inspire and help you to chart out your own path. Today, we talk to Michelle, an MBA student at Berkeley Haas. She has previous experience as a consultant at Numerator and Bain, and is currently developing her own business to bring affordable semi-tailored fitting jeans to the industry. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Michelle. Okay, so on today's episode, we have our guest, Michelle Sie. I'll let Michelle introduce herself. Hey everyone, my name is Michelle. I'm a current first year at Berkeley Haas. Um, in my prior life, I've been both a consultant and a market researcher. Um, I know Andrew from undergrad and we've been good friends for a couple of years. Yeah, so Michelle, you kind of mentioned you've you know been through a few careers so far, both in management consulting and research side and now doing MBA. Can you kind of talk about your experiences at you know the first two careers and then now transitioning to an MBA? Yeah, so I did management consulting for right around two years. I was at a big three firm and I will say it was a really tough experience for me. It wasn't the best environment for me, but I also will say that I did learn a lot in that environment. And there is a uh, name brand to the big three for a reason. And I honestly, talking to a lot of people now in my MBA program, it's honestly a privilege to know that even consulting was an industry to get into and that those Mm. were certain target firms that you should look into because I think for a lot of people that that wasn't even on their radar at the age of like 20 or 19 when we started looking (laughs) into it. So um, yeah, it was, it was a tough time. I mean, work-life balance is not consulting's forte, but definitely learned a lot. And I decided to leave because I didn't really get a lot of control over the type of projects I was on or really my life Mm -hmm. when I was working consulting. It was very much what the project needed and what the team needed, which is definitely understandable, but not the ideal working environment that I was looking for. So I switched over to a market research firm now known as Numerator. At the time I joined, it was called InfoScout, which is a Bay Area startup. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's based on panel data. I actually, to be totally honest, I love that experience. Like what that job offered me was a ton of autonomy. And it really got me to work on things that I I was genuinely interested in. Um, In consulting, I didn't get a lot of control on the industry or topic areas. But within uh, a market research firm, I knew I was going to get to work on consumer goods. I knew I was going to get a good balance of quant data and qualitative data. Mm -hmm. So uh, it honestly struck a really good chord with me. And the autonomy was incredible. Like I I could choose when I wanted to start work, when I wanted to end work, what deadlines I want to give myself with clients. And um, it it made balancing still a heavier workload than a 40-hour week um, with my life much, much easier. So I actually left Numerator just a couple months ago to start my MBA, and I'm at Berkeley Haas right now, and leaving for an MBA is something that I I was a little resistant to for a long time, Mm. coming from consulting. So many people go into MBAs looking to get into consulting, so I had a hard time seeing what value it would provide me having done consulting and not really loved it. Mm -hmm. The reason I ultimately ended up deciding to pursue the MBA was I hadn't really planned to go down an entrepreneurial path in my life, but I I had a budding idea for a while. And after thinking through it for a couple months and trying to figure out where to start and what to do, I just realized I didn't have the answers to that and that I needed 
a little bit more structure and the right sort of environment to explore something that was going to be a brand new industry and something that I wasn't familiar with. And so for me, it was really key to find a school that had a very entrepreneurial culture where it wasn't, oh, that's a big risk to go do that. It was like, oh yeah, why wouldn't you go do that? Like go do your <laughs> thing. So um, that's why I'm here. And, and that's what I was really hoping to get out of an MBA is two years time to just explore and, and try out new things. Um, because market research is great in a lot of ways, but I, at 26 years old, I wasn't really content on that being my career for the next 30, 40 years of my life. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And you, you mentioned a few things we'll, we'll touch on. I think the first thing when you mentioned was, you know, at your consulting job, not having as much control over the type of industry you get exposed to. I think a lot of students, you know, the appeal of consulting is, oh, I can try a lot of different industries and hopefully industries that they would like. Um, why do you think that was, I guess, a bit of a different experience where maybe that's a different ex- like expectations in a reality in terms of maybe picking the careers that you're interested in once you start working? Yeah, so transparently, I knew before I got into consulting that I was more interested in the consumer. Mm-hmm. And I mis- was not necessarily misled, but I believed that I would get opportunities to work on consumers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in reality, with the firm I was at, it's more localized structure. So you're trying to go to companies, you know, near-ish to your home office. And so being in the Midwest, that ended up being a lot of industrial stuff. And mm-hmm. that I knew going in, that wasn't really wanted, what I wanted to work on. So I think it's both like firms obviously want to push the perception that you get a lot of control. Um, mm-hmm. But also at the same time, yes, you do get to see a ton of industries in time, but that time could be three to four years. (laughs) That time may not be within your first year or your second year. And by the time you're done with the first and second year, you may think, you know what? I don't really want to wait around to see what I like anymore. I know what I like. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I got to. Yeah. So it's also helpful. Like when you got industries that you didn't consider, you were like, it just solidifies your mind that, Hey, I do want to do consumer and I don't want to do energy or I don't want to do finance on whatever type of yeah. project that you did get on. So there was, I guess, still some value in There's being definitely, on industries you didn't like. Yeah. It's definitely value to validate that you don't want to do certain things. Like that's just as important as knowing as what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you also mentioned, you know, going to an MBA, the decision maker being, the time to have experience in starting up your own idea, right? Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a bit so far about your experience in a, a currently at the MBA, given that it's virtual, so I know it's very unique. So how has that experience been like so far? Yeah, it's been really good. Um, there's not one person I've talked to who's been like, oh, why are you doing that? Like, And that's actually a response that I found fairly common when I was talking to family and friend groups. Mm-hmm. It's like, why, why are you chasing this? But that definitely is not the attitude here. So one, that's like a boost of confidence in itself to feel mm-hmm. like it's okay to take risk. Um, the other thing is all MBAs are known for networking. Like that's part of what you're paying for to go to an MBA. I didn't think I realized how much that fact that we're paying for it just automatically encourages people to be networkers and help out their classmates. So for example, one of my roommates here, she met a couple who has a clothing brand and I'm interested in starting a business business and clothing. And like, she was like, Oh yeah, like I should totally connect you with them. Like I just happen to meet them through a mutual friend, <laughs> but like, let's make sure you know them. And so people are very willing to make those warm intros, share ideas with you, share with clothing. For me, it's like really easy for people to have brand recommendations or things for me to look at. So 
it's been overwhelmingly pretty positive on the entrepreneurial route, even mm -hmm. though it is virtual, uh, because people are always trying to help out and, and they want to see you be successful. And a lot of people want to contribute to that success. And plus it makes, you know, it makes the school look good. So there's definitely <laughs> incentive from the school's perspective to, to get you like an environment and resources to make it happen. Yeah. And I'm curious since you know, you've, you've had a business background in undergrad IU, you've done management consulting before you've done the research side as well. Have your classes at your MBA been, you know, helpful? Like what have you been learning in an MBA? Yeah, I think the biggest bang for buck you're going to get in an MBA, regardless of the school is going to be in the later classes, like the electives. Mm -hmm. So right now I'm in only core classes, like your basic econ, statistics, leadership classes. So I, I will say like right now, a lot of those core classes are more of a refresh than anything else. But, you know, to be fair, there's a lot of people in an MBA program. And I think particularly at Haas who come from backgrounds that aren't quant heavy. So for mm. everyone to get on the same page by the time we get to electives, it's really necessary that we all get a refresh on core. So we're all starting at the same base level at least. So yeah, it's not ideal to be taking core classes, but it's, it definitely makes sense for as far as like community building and making sure that everybody is knowledgeable enough to continue on into some of those deeper topics. Yeah. And what are some of the electives available in the later classes? So one that's really popular here is negotiations, which I think is really popular in Interesting. the yeah. classes. Um, so I'm really interested in negotiations. And there's also power in politics, which is kind of along the same line. Oh. But a lot of those classes, I think, are, are great at just for people who are like me, like maybe a little more shy and maybe a little bit more introverted. Mm -hmm. it, it's a good practice zone for conversations that might be a little bit harder. Um, and I will say one of the classes we're taking right now is called Leadership Communications. And we give speeches every week. And unfortunately, it's over Zoom right now, which is, you know, definitely doesn't replicate doing a speech in front of a whole class. Mm -hmm. But... Even so, it's been a really good practice in talking and organizing your thoughts verbally. It's been good improv practice too, which used to really scare me, but we've done so many improv games. I'm like, <laughs> I've been like neutralized a little bit towards the fear against improv. Um, and that class I think is just an absolute banger. Like that is the type of thing that MBAs really add value to is just forcing you to be in an environment where you have to public speak and you have yeah. to share your ideas and you have to learn how to persuade people and inspire people. Um, and that is definitely something that I think is a ton of value, even just hitting the ground um, first semester. So what are some of the highlights or techniques you've learned to inspire people <laughs> and persuade them? <laughs> yeah, so we just did our persuasion speeches this week. And what I've found is that because we do it in small teams, everybody kind of has different things that they're working on. For me, for example, one of the things I'm really working on is tone. I often mm. come across as really friendly, um, someone that you can trust, really bubbly, but maybe that's not the personality you want to exude in all situations. Mm -hmm. And so what I've been really practicing for persuasion and next week is going to be our um, inspirational speeches is being a little bit more authoritative in my language. Interesting. Um, and, and that's just, you know, hanging out with people, giving your speeches, hearing feedback week to week, same group of people who can give you feedback on just not one speech, but the progression of your speeches over the course. 
So yeah, it's, it's about a variety of different things. Eye contact, the way you stand, the way you sit, where you put yourself in the frame for the Zoom, all of these <laughs> things. Just, it's, it's a bunch of different things, but it gets you thinking about it when probably the last time you really worked on skills like that was maybe high school speech class or college speech class, whenever the last time you did speech class was. And it actually makes such a difference just to have those in the back of your mind as like, oh, when I'm talking, I do have to think about these things. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, once a persuasion speech, once a motivational speech. So you, it sounded like for the persuasion speech, you said being a bit more authoritative is helpful. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. I didn't, I didn't least, see it from that angle. <laughs> yeah, or at least the ability to turn that on. I think it's really, there are certain muscles that will never be my strength. Mm. You know, they're not going to be my natural inclination and they're not going to be the strongest way I communicate. But it's really powerful to be able to turn that on and off as mm. you need it because it is, there is context for each time you're giving a speech mm -hmm. or a talk or a presentation. So it's what I've learned there is like, it's less about changing fundamentally who you are, but learning skills so that you can tap into them as needed. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. It's always, the contact is always very important. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who you're talking to when your persuasion might be, different the tactics that you use and how you portray yourself. Yeah. yeah. So I know you, you hinted a bit about this earlier where you said, you know, being at Berkeley, the environment's very conducive for, in this case, risk-taking for entrepreneurial ventures. You know, having worked in the Midwest, in Chicago, and also studied in the Midwest area and now being in the West, what other differences have you seen in terms of people that you meet or the culture there? Yeah, it definitely has been a bit of a culture shock to be in Berkeley. Oh. And I was surprised by that. I will say, I think Berkeley is known in the U.S. as being a very liberal center politically. And that definitely applies to the MBA program as well. So it's definitely been a culture shock. I mean, I, I would say I'm like a liberal left-leaning, but in the Midwest, we don't really have a ton of conversation about politics or gender identities, uh, or, or a lot of these like really sensitive topics. And what I found here is that people, one, enjoy talking about them, mm. want to hear your opinions on them. But it also uh, is, is a little bit challenging because I wasn't in an environment where I knew the vocabulary to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. So it's not like a lot of times I'm part of these conversations, it's just like, I need to be much more knowledgeable about this. I need to learn much more about how to speak about these things especially in sort of the social situation that we're in as a country right now with race relations, income inequalities, COVID. There, there's just so many things that are hot topics that I am realizing now that I'm relatively uneducated on. And um, honestly, maybe a little bit scared to, to dive deep in with people I don't really know well. So yeah, it's, it's been uh, definitely a shock to the system. I think, you know, reflecting back on it now, I should have expected that coming into Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And I definitely am learning a lot about how to have those conversations and how to listen to people mm -hmm. when it comes to those sensitive topics and being a little bit less scared of, you know, confronting those topics with new people. Yeah, so, you know, doing this type of discussions, is it, I guess... A equal balance of both sides and differing opinions given that I guess the the population there tends to already have a certain leaning towards a different type of thinking 
is there diverse thing, discussions going on regarding all these different topics? I think by self-selection, most people, I don't want to speak for everyone in my program, yeah. but I think by self-selection, a lot of people here are pretty, pretty left-leaning. Mm-hmm. So I would say like that, I, I would argue that not the entire political spectrum is here, mm-hmm. but overwhelmingly people do want to hear what you have to say. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of people, I think, at the end of the day, want to just understand where you're coming from. So it is a little tricky to have these conversations, but I think it's really helpful for everyone involved to just keep having them because there's such a dichotomy between the West, the South, and the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very like that concept of coastal elitism. And huh. you can see it and you can feel it a little bit when you come here because it's just a very different culture than in the middle of the U.S. And, you know, I drove from Chicago to <laughs> California and I saw that middle part of the U.S. that is also really different from any urban center. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's really fascinating to, to be in an environment like this. And I, I'm very curious how this environment will react to whatever happens in November during the election. Yeah. Um, and also it's a good, I guess, time to practice all the persuasion skills and <laughs> talking skills that persuasion that you've been learning in your classes in these discussions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, you know, key thing we've learned is really active listening. So I think that's really also a key component <laughs> to these conversations. Yeah. So can you elaborate a bit about, you know, what you've learned about active listening? Yeah. So active listening is a really interesting topic right now because so much of communication is not in person. So what we've learned is just the importance of cueing to the person that you're talking to that you are listening. So it's not just Uh, you active listening. You need to make sure that other people are aware that you're active listening because we all have had those conversations on the phone and it's like, am I talking to myself right now? (laughs) Because there's just no response on the other side and you get no nonverbal cues. So that's one thing. The other thing is just, we are so, our, our attention span is at such a deficit in this generation. We have so many things going on. Our computers are pinging all over the place, text messages, whatever is happening. There's just so much noise in our lives that I think it's really hard for us to be fully present in a moment. And one of the skills that active listening and improv really tries to force on you is like, if you are not paying attention in improv, you don't know how to jump in and you don't know how to keep the story going. So you really got to be zoned in, in the moment or else you're going to miss your window. So that has been just really hard to, I don't know if you've ever done this, but like during the day, like I'll find myself reaching for my phone or like going onto Slack to look at messages. And whereas I'm like, there's nothing to look at. Like, like I looked at it 10 minutes ago. There's not possibly anything new there. Uh, and I think active listening is just a good practice to, to center you a little bit more on being present in the moment too. Yeah, no, that that's good. It's just like you know, mindfulness meditation or just being in the moment, similar concept, I guess. Yeah, it definitely is. I think they're very adjacent to each other. Yeah, okay. Well, it sounds like the MBA experience so far has been interesting in both the culture and also the opportunities that you know help you out with what you want to do in terms of starting your own business. So yeah. I know you mentioned, you know, you said it's in the retail space. Like, can you talk a bit more about this idea or if it's top secret and you, you can talk <laughs> in more vague terms if it's a secret. <laughs> yeah, I will, I will speak in a little bit of vague terms because I'm, I'm not too far along at this point and I, 
I don't think anyone is going to be stealing my idea. I think that's pretty unusual <laughs> for that to actually happen. But just to be on the safe side, I will speak at a pretty high level. I am interested in apparel. I'm specifically interested in women's denim. I have always had issues fitting into jeans and finding something that fit right for me and just been really frustrated by that process. I'm a big believer that clothes has a lot of power to make you feel good about yourself or to make you feel really bad. And a lot of that has to do with whether or not your clothes fit. It sucks when you, you know, are in your closet and there's this old dress that you're trying on and you're like, oh, it doesn't fit anymore. Like whether or not you should feel bad, that's, that's a whole societal issue right there. But I think it's not uncommon that that happens. So when I'm trying on jeans and try on 10 pairs at a Levi's and nothing fits, I don't feel great about it. And I want to change that. I, I don't think that what the market currently offers in terms of jeans and being able to even find your fit is, is enough. And I think we can do better. So I'm, I'm interested in ways that we can be more thoughtful about the way we design patterns and being more inclusive, not just of size, because size is a big thing within the industry. Like there's a lot of brands that carry a wide range of sizes from like double zero to 40, mm -hmm. which is, which is a huge range, but inclusivity in terms of clothing doesn't mean just size. It also means body shape to me. And so I'm really interested in how body shape can be incorporated more into the way we design and starting with jeans. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm, I'm focused on jeans because that's my problem area, but I really think there's opportunity for this sort of like mentality and methodology to be applied, not just in other women's clothing, but in a lot of different clothing. It's, it's a big trend, I think, in the industry towards moving more, customize and personalize clothing items yeah and so you mentioned about this concept of customize and personalize is this something that can be solved with i guess tailor fit or tailoring clothes yeah so tailoring is definitely the way that most people solve it tailoring mm -hmm. is quite expensive mm -hmm. so something that i'm hoping to do with this is get in the middle between like a mass manufacturer and custom. So mm -hmm. a typical custom jean will cost, like the baseline lowest price I've seen is 150. Oh wow. Uh, 200 is pretty common. And your average jean that an average household buys on sale is like 20 bucks. So, so the, the difference is like 10 times. Uh, so let's like maybe only 5% of people can really even go for those $200 pairs of custom jeans. And so I really want to find some sort of middle ground where mm. you're manufacturing more sizes and more variation within body shapes, but you're not necessarily going fully custom because fully custom is always going to be the most expensive option. Mm. So I haven't really figured out the manufacturing process really, but that's, that's what I'm aiming for is to find a better solution without breaking the bank. Yeah. Cause I'm a frugal shopper. I, I don't want to be breaking the bank when I'm buying things. And so I don't want to make something yeah. that, I, as a consumer, would not be enthusiastic about buying. Yeah, that makes sense because, like, there it is a, a high end option that's available in tailoring. Yeah. It's kind of having still an affordable, but not just, you know, your basic $20 jeans that doesn't fit as well. Yeah. 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 So, so I'm just curious about the fashion space. So, from what I've seen, you know, there's a lot of fast fashion like Zara as well. And people always talk about, you know, clothing waste, right? And a lot of these mm -hmm. clothings that get sent to other countries, like there's such a, I think the documentary I saw had like piles and piles of like leftover clothing. Yeah. Is that something you, you also consider when you're, you're starting up your startup and the jeans side as well? 
Yeah. So James are notoriously a really big environmental polluter. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's because of the amount of water that's often used. And I have a maybe somewhat controversial opinion on, mm. on production for sustainability. I think the issue with sustainability is not just on the production side. It's terrible that genes waste that much water. I mean, it's not ideal. But at the same time, I think it's ridiculous to encourage sustainability when producing sustainably costs $200 for a pair of jeans. Mm. You know, that, that's like a very elitist way to provide sustainability to the people. Like the average household can't be sustainable. And are they bad for doing that? Like, I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's just, they can't afford it. So I think one of the ways that every household can be more sustainable and every household can contribute to like a better environment for the future is simply by buying less. Mm. Americans buy way too much stuff. It doesn't matter what stuff, but we buy way too much of it. And that's what ends up in those piles in other countries and gets donated. So I'm really encouraging of one, don't just donate clothes. Like donating is part of it. But if you're going to donate, you're just contributing to those piles. What you also want to make sure that you do is that you're also purchasing secondhand so that it is much more of a circular economy in reality. The other thing that I think every household can can consider doing is just buying less. And um, that can just mean like if you're buying jeans, for example, I know people who have 15 pairs of jeans. You do not need 15 pairs of jeans if you're a normal person and not a fashionista with a fashion blog. Like that's not, that's not something you need. And focusing more on, on what you need and what makes sense for you is a really good way to go about being more environmentally friendly without breaking the bank. So one thing that I really want to do with my business model and, you know, we're not solidified anyway, but one thing I'm really considering is pre-ordering. So that's been really successful for a lot of businesses in that if you really want something, you pre-order it. So we're not making a bunch of stuff that we can't sell. Yeah. And then the other thing is that I love buyback programs. So Patagonia does a really good job of this. Mm. REI does a good job of this where you wear it for a while. Maybe it's no use of you. Maybe you grew out of it, whatever reason you give it back to the store and the store resells it at a lower cost. And that means that if I'm making these better fitting jeans, maybe you can't afford it at my initial price point, but maybe you can afford it at that second tier price point when mm. it's secondhand. And that, that should be equally important. Like that's just as valuable to me as a business. If I really care about sustainability for you to buy it secondhand from me, than it is for you to buy it firsthand from me too. So yeah, I really do love that model of like keeping the circular economy going and just making sure that things don't end up in a landfill somewhere. Yeah, that's a very good point because I was going to ask, like, you know, how would you balance out as a business wanting to sell more, right? Like the reason why Zara has so many leftovers is because they have 52 seasons, right? Every week there's something yeah. new being churned out, but that's because they want to maximize their revenue in terms of selling more product. But it sounds like that circular system that you just talked about is a really good way to sell, still sell, right? Having like yeah. these, these things come back, but being a bit more sustainable since it's stuff that you already created in your first wave and you're just selling it at a cheaper price now. Yeah. So right, it's a good concept. Yeah. Um, I, I will make another plug on sort of the, the Zara model of all these trends. Trends are really going out of fashion. I think that is mm. a big movement within the industry, starting from like a haute couture level. I think it's gotten way out of hand and people feel that. So one thing that I've seen a lot of new brands introduce is what we call a seasonless collection. Seasonless so collection. It, it's not 
it's it's clothes that is transitional across seasons, but also clothes that don't go out of style. Things that are really basic, really classic, high quality. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that you know it's not that you don't express yourself. It's that maybe you're a little bit more thoughtful, and the majority of pieces in your closet are classic staples that you can wear for years and years and years. And then maybe you accessorize with some fun things. Maybe you still have that one or two fun dress in your closet, but it's it's really just you don't need all these trends and you don't need to be trying to keep up with them because trying to keep up with them is, is just not going to work for the environment and honestly for your wallet either. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good to hear that the industry is trending, I guess, in a more sustainable direction. Yeah, yeah, I think there is going to be a lot of change post-COVID especially. And unfortunately, because a lot of businesses have been suffering uh, mm-hmm. a lot with the pandemic and the recession. Yeah. Um, I know you know you mentioned a bit earlier as well about having this encouraging environment to do a startup in Berkeley. Like you coming from an Asian background, was there I guess more pressure growing up to take a, a safer route? And now you know you doing trying to your own business seems to be like a more quote unquote risky option. Yeah, I I would say generally yes. Generally, immigrant families and not just Asian families, I think immigrant families work so hard to get here. They work mm-hmm. so hard to give you a good life that oftentimes it can feel almost like a slap in the face to your parents or whoever your caregivers are that you're not, <laughs> you know, taking advantage of the opportunities they put in front of you and work so hard to get. So I, I definitely feel that to a degree. I will say my parents over the years have adjusted their mentality a lot. And right now, both my parents are very encouraging of me taking this risk. Mm and have kind of taken the point of view of we weren't given the opportunity to take a risk like that. We didn't have that as an option growing up. And part of us coming here to give you options is maybe giving you an option like this for you to take a risk and and be willing to maybe fail and (laughs) take a fall. And so I I think that's been really helpful to have that encouragement from home. But but I'm not gonna lie, like it's it's been a transition over you know the last 10 years to get to that (laughs) point. But I think they are becoming more open-minded that um, it is maybe a risk, but at the same time, it's high risk, high reward sort of scenario. So um, yeah, they're, they're definitely hopeful and um, supporting me in whatever way they can. Yeah, no, that's, that's good that you have that kind of support. I think it's important that, you know, not just the environment currently in, but having family support is a huge plus as well. Yeah. Family and friends support is huge. I mean, on, entrepreneurship is or small business ownership you know whatever you want to call it is a very lonely journey (laughs) so uh, being able to talk to people about it um even outside of your you know immediate like entrepreneurship network um is is super helpful yeah so how how do you balance that i guess you know when you're it's it's very stressful trying to run your own idea and your own business what are some ways you do to i guess keep sane (laughs) i so right now I'm doing a lot of things. I'm in school. I'm doing yeah. a part-time internship. I'm trying to run my own business. I'm trying to socialize with my new MBA friends. And so what has always been really helpful for me, and it's also what I do for my workout schedule, is I just plan everything. Like mm. I have blocks of window and I label them in all different colors. Like these are my workout things. These are my class things. These are my social activities. These are my startup things. And so every day I want to spend like two hours working on my thing. And then that's just where we're going to start now. And right now that's the amount of time I can give and, and make sense at the stage I'm at now. But like, I know in a couple of weeks, honestly, that's going to ramp up really fast. 
So yeah, I think it, it's not ideal to block off your calendar all the time, but I think it really does help you organize. And it's really easy to visually look at my calendar and be like, well, I spent way too much on XYZ because my whole calendar is blue and that's not how it should be. Yeah. Have, have you always been this disciplined and planning out your day or was it just that once you knew you wanted to do this business and this kicked in and now you're like, yes, block out time for startup, for exercise, for et cetera? Um, Andrew, you and I have talked about this, but I, I actually think <laughs> the discipline in my life, 90% of it is actually from when I started working out more and trying to be healthier about the mm. way I was taking care of myself. And you know, it's just so stupid, but like the little things in life, like making your bed in the morning and like making sure you go to bed at a reasonable time and waking up at 6am every day. Like, like those little things just like teach you every day and, and reinforce every day, the importance of being thoughtful about your time, organizing your mm. time. Um, so I would say, yeah, it started off like that because I used to go to this gym and they, their last class started at 8pm which, and it took me an hour to get to this gym. So I'd have to be home by seven to get to the gym at eight. So because I had to plan so much to make sure I was home at the right time so that I can make these classes that I was paying for, um, it like forced me to schedule out my day and I didn't really have a choice. And so now it just, it gives me much more peace of mind to be like, I know what's coming and I'm making sure that I'm making time for all the things that are important for me. Yeah, no, so it sounds like exercise was also a good start and all these small things actually do add up to getting used to being disciplined and setting a schedule. Yeah, and there's that one speech by some guy in the Navy. Yeah, to make your bed. <laughs> yeah, to make your bed. And like, I like, I would feel like I watched that maybe five years ago, like a long time ago, and I didn't really buy it. And now that I I'm consider myself a full-blown adult, um, I'm like, no, like actually make your bed. <laughs> <laughs> it makes a big difference. And I think I haven't gone a day maybe in the last like two and a half years without making my bed. So yeah. Oh, it's little wow. things. It's okay. little things. Yeah. I guess that's also a good transition. The next question is, you know, you've you've gone through some transformations, different careers, different mindsets, and now knowing what you want to do. What advice do you have for someone that's, you know, graduating or just graduated that's now in the start of their career? Yeah, I think one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got, um, and this is from a professor that we, we had together, Ruben, is to invest early. When you get to a new job, make sure that you set expectations and impressions really early on and make sure they're good. Mm. It makes such a big difference. And I would say I did a better job of that in my second job than I did in my first one. Mm -hmm. Because it just, it gives you a lot more forgiveness down the road. There are always going to be mistakes. It is impossible to be 100% foolproof in any job. It's just not a thing. But people are much more forgiving of when those mistakes come up, if they trust you and they know that you are truly dedicated to this from the start. So that's like one piece of advice that I would really emphasize. And then I think the second one is, and I say this, you know, having been the checklist person and gone to like a really good firm right out of undergrad by happenstance and like, you know, being like looking back now, maybe I wouldn't say this if I didn't have that experience, but I, I actually think it's really important to like what you do. Maybe it's not your number one passion in life, but being interested and in really enjoying what you do makes such a big difference. So I feel like there's a lot of this, you have to pay your dues mentality, which, which, I don't think it's untrue entirely, mm -hmm. 
but I think you, you really ought to be thoughtful about where you want to pay your dues and how much you want to pay them. Because uh, it's a really toxic mentality, I think, that can get you to stay often in careers that maybe you don't love, but you feel like you should be in. And so I just, especially early on in your career, like, a lot of people I talk to are like, well, I need to do this for a couple of years and then I can go do what I want. Mm. And I always want to question that and be like, well, why aren't you just doing what you want if you know what you want? Um, and, you know, it's totally valid to go down either path. I definitely chose one path that was like, do, do the thing you're supposed to do. Um, and I, I feel like it worked for me in a lot of ways. But I just, I would question that early on and make sure that you are being really introspective about what you're getting from your career, what you want from your career and where you're ultimately headed. Yeah. And I think on that note, what advice do you have to someone who doesn't know what they want, right? It's in your, in your second thing that you gave for a piece of advice, you said, if they know what they want, why not do it? But I think a lot of college kids are, they're not even sure what they want to do. So what advice do you have for people in that situation? Yeah. Uh, I think the, you know, I think you can reframe the question. It's not mm -hmm. always what you want to do. Do you know what you don't want to do? Mm -hmm. Like not being like, I don't want to do X, Y, Z is still a good place to start. It's starting from different points. Like one, you're picking from the top what you want to do. And the other one's like <laughs> of elimination. And there's no right or wrong way to do it. So I think for people who really aren't as sure, experimenting is really helpful um, to just talk to people. Like, especially early on in your career, people will just love being mentors. People love talking to you and answering questions and it makes them feel great. And <laughs> it helps you get the knowledge you need. So yeah, talk to people. and just keep exploring. I think right now it's a, it's a very different environment than maybe our parents' generation were in that people switch jobs all the time. Yeah. People go from non-technical roles into technical roles and reverse. Like it just, it's, it's a free for all on some level. So don't be scared to take that leap if you're like, okay, I'm not really loving what I do right now, but I think maybe this other thing might be right. Well, it's better than staying in a job that you already know you don't want to stay in. So mm -hmm. go chase that thing that might be a maybe. And maybe that maybe is the actual real thing for you. Yeah. I see uh, consulting has trained you well to consider all options in a me format. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I will never... Consulting was not my dream career at the end of the day, but I will never hate on consulting. It is a great training ground for people. And honestly, it is great for people who don't know what they want to do because it buys you a little bit of time. Yeah. Um, but no, I think this has been a great conversation today. I appreciate you taking the time out to hop on. I hope you yeah. feel the same. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Andrew. <laughs> thank you again for joining us on this episode of As Asians. I have been your host, Andrew Tan, and I hope you learned something from today's episode. If you or someone you know would like to be part of the show, please contact us at asasianspodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us a like, or a review on your preferred podcast platform. And I hope you had an amazing time with us today.